What is London? Clean, commodious, neat, but, a very few things indeed accepted, an endless addition of littleness to littleness, extending itself over a great tract of land. Edmund Burke, letter to the Reverend Robert Dodge, 1792. So as usual, I've opened the front door and grabbed the first two likely-looking Londoners who happen to be out there. It does seem that everyone's got a story to tell. I think screaming does help as well. Ooh, yes, the Horniman Walrus. They dug out bodies in 1887, 1873. What did he look like when he came out the other end of that? Knackered. Got Sarah Palin coming. How do you feel about that? A little bit pathetic. <laughs> So we're in the parlour of Dr Johnson's house. One sees a story that is both of protests and of coming together. So they're banning people from bringing food to homeless. Yeah, they're banning soup runs. You know, we weren't buckled by the terrorism. A word in your eye, don't worry or push. A step in the gate is worth two in the bush. Which area of ridiculousness do we start on with that story? Why would you give a medal to a pigeon? Listen, you're all idiots. You know, it was like culture or anything. No running, no throwing. This is pretty serious stuff. You engage with other people, you link across to other people. It's just huge. It's gigantic. <laughs> How many times have you done this so far? That depends. What, what do you think of that approach? I think that's terrible. London life is a really rich experience, and there's a lot that's good about living Boris here. Boris Johnson weighs as much as 40 school children. What a peculiar conversation. Hello, it's Monday, April the 16th, 2012. I'm M. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views and curiosities from London, UK. You can download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, or tweet me at Londonist Sound. Now, in the last uh, week or two, we've been asking you to nominate your favourite pubs and bars in the City of London. The biggest surprise was just how many people think the city or square mile is all of London rather than the uh, ancient quarter where the bankers hang out. Among the listings here for the most popular pubs were, of course, Ye Olde Cheshire Cheese, the Blackfriar, the Old Red Cow, the Cockpit, and at number five, uh, equal with the Tipperary, is the Jamaica Wine House, which is where we are today. It's in Cornhill, where the guests of Jasmine, the manager here, it's tucked away in St. Michael's Alley. It's part of a labyrinth of charming medieval courts and alleys off Cornhill and Lombard Street. And it was originally London's first coffee house. It opened in 1652 and counted Samuel Pepys among its earliest patrons. Here with me today are Matt Green. He's the co-founder of Unreal City. His new tours focus on the history of coffee houses in London, brought to life with actors and singers who hide around the city during the tours. Janan Yenjevsky is one of Londonists' writers. She specialises in food, events and arts and uh, Japanese culture and karaoke especially which is quite an unusual thing to specialize in um yeah it is a bit but um i uh, spent two and a half years living in japan and today actually is my two-year anniversary of my return moving back to london from uh my time in japan so it's it all it syncs up nicely right as it seems <laughs> and i know you're going to be celebrating with some kimchi later on matt tell us a little bit about the, the place we're in well, the uh, Jamaica Wine House, it's uh, steeped in history because it was the site of the first coffee house. So every time anyone takes a sip of coffee anywhere in London, they're participating in a ritual that can be traced back to this spot where we're sitting now. 
Um, and it was opened by this eccentric Greek who had a little shack in the churchyard. Um, it was selling this uh, disgusting, viscous, oily black liquid, which became a huge hit, sobered everyone up, and uh, inspired some of the best ideas that would make Britain the envy of the world. And we're in good company, of course, with Samuel Pepys having frequented this, this very place. How much has the place changed, do you know? Uh, it's changed a lot. It's a completely different building. The original um, coffee house was actually a tent with a sort of garish um, Islamic um, sort of awning that used to come down and double up as a shutter. Um, it was flimsy. There were no tables, chairs, or no roof, anything like that. Um, obviously, now we're in quite a sort of sumptuous historic uh, tavern. Um, and I think this was built in the 19th century. Um, but it still retains echoes of the, the sort of history um, of, the, of the area. And uh, Peeps loved it for its uh, what he called the diversity of company and discourse. Uh, talked about all sorts of weird and wonderful things um, on this very site. Which is a beautiful foreshadowing of what we're going to be uh, doing here today. Now, I'm conscious, of course, that we're, none of us are specialists in, in crime and policing. Crime and policing is exactly what's dominated the news agenda over the last week or two. What has caught your eye particularly as we look at this raft of stories in that area? Janan? The ongoing uh, assertion that the Metropolitan Police is institutionally racist. Uh, this has been going on for for years and years and years and years and there just seems to be more and more stories pointing towards the fact that there it is institutionally racist but you're in an ideal position perhaps having just recently coming back from overseas to compare the met police with the police of uh, another city tokyo what's your sense of the same uh, sort of issue there very interesting actually because um japan has one of the lowest crime rates in in the world it's absolutely phenomenal it's kind of a joke that all the police ever seem to do in japan is uh give directions because uh everywhere you go uh there is a police box uh, it's interesting actually ties in quite nicely with the, the the police numbers story because every single uh police station has it's called a korban and a, a korban is like a tiny police box Every single station in Japan, in Tokyo, has a korban attached to it. So if anything happens, uh, you can go straight there. You can report something missing. You can report an incident that's happened. And you just feel really safe. There is no crime, and uh, they very rarely have to deal with, with any incidences, but the, the, their presence just makes you feel so safe. It's a bit of a tangent, but there's always um, uh, eki-in, which are station attendants at stations so you've got highly manned stations highly manned police boxes that are everywhere and it's quite in stark contrast I mean when I came home it was difficult to adjust for so many reasons and it's funny kind of virtually abandoned tube stations in the sticks where I'm from but zones five to six is uh, is was one of them it's don't really think about it until you come home and of course police stations themselves many stations being closed so there isn't that presence is it, is it something you uh, find yourself conscious of Matt uh, no that doesn't bother me at all I, I think a lot of the problems that uh, we have with crime in London um, you know, the, the gun crime the knife crime the solutions don't really have anything to do with policing I think policing is just one very minor part of the broader solution and until you tackle the deeper root causes of things like gun crime and knife crime putting an extra thousand police officers which they're all quibbling over like Boris, Ken, Paddock like who's going to put the extra thousand here or there it's not really going to make any difference you've got to actually think you know why do like teenagers go out and feel that they have to carry a knife or they're going to just be a nobody and how can we tackle that mm. and it's about much deeper things than just policing I think. No I, I definitely agree with you to, to an extent um, 
I do believe that there is, you know, obviously having more police isn't just going to magically make our society a lot safer, but something does have to be said for the huge psychological impact that that does come from the, the very physical, tangible presence of policemen. And like I said, not even station, station attendants aren't law enforcers, but them just being there does bring something. Of course, having more police isn't going to kind of magically solve all of London's problems, like people aren't going to suddenly drop their knives because policemen are around, but I do believe there's a big psychologically weighted, more police about, you feel safer. If you are going to commit a crime, you'll be more reticent to because there'll be more police. And So I do do agree that it's not going to solve everything. I think it's fitting that we're debating this in such a civilised way because uh, (laughs) one of the things about coffee houses was that you agreed to disagree and uh, you could have a robust exchange of views and it would never come to violence or sort of like insults or anything like that. And so on this very site, people had had agreements like this. But historically, what I find interesting is that there were no police at all in London until 1832. And uh, generally, it was um, an orderly place. You had uh, rebellions and riots that rocked it occasionally, but people kind of, you know, got on with it and took the law into their own hands. Um, And I just think having policemen just uh, on show is, you know, it might make a bit of difference, but it's something that's headline grabbing and isn't actually really going to make that much of a difference in the long term. Now, Brian Paddock, of course, has given an interview to Londonist in the last uh, week or so in which he lays out his plans for London and it's it's his uh, manifesto for the election, which is just about two and a half weeks away. He talks, uh, of course, about crime and and there is the argument that he's a single-issue candidate as well, that crime is uh, is all he's got to talk about. But he he also speaks about transport and, in a way, the the budgetary issues around those may uh, affect each other. What's your sense of what he's offering as a candidate? Um, um, in regards to transport, if he if he can actually pull it off, I'm very much in favour of some of his changes. Uh, again, from a very selfish point of view, uh, the rezoning of uh, stations so that zones five to six are more sensible. I mean, I, I live out in in northwest in in zone six, so personally that that would benefit me. For, for those who don't know what rezoning is. Uh, it would be basically if you're in zone six, your your fare is more expensive. So if my, my station is in Zone 6, if it was rezoned to Zone 5, uh, I would be able to save money on my weekly travel card, which at the moment stands at something like fifty fifty three pounds which means I have to work one eight-hour day a week in order just to pay to get to work, which which to me is, is insane. What, what about the... Because he's uh, made a, a few suggestions as to what could be done to save money for commuters in particular. What, what do you think of his other suggestions? What sort of thing has he put on the table? The, the one-hour bus ticket, which will allow people to get on and off uh, within the hour at a, at a fixed set price. The part-time season tickets, people who don't work five days a week, because um, a, lot, a lot of people don't work five days a week. Some people, a lot of people are veering into composite careers now where they can do one or two jobs in the whole nine to five. I think a lot of people, myself included, uh, are, are sick of it. Um, and the early bird fares for, for shift workers, you know, people like kind of nurses and people who work at airports, if you travel before half past seven, then, then you get those reduced. And I, if, again, if they can be pulled off, I think they're all brilliant ideas, but it's whether or not it can be done. Ken Livingston, of course, is offering a, a 7% discount on uh, transport generally, which Paddock is rubbishing. This is interesting, um, and Ken has offered to resign if he doesn't deliver this, uh, which is potentially 
quite risky and, and I, I saw some campaign literature come through the door and there was this uh, quite eye-catching pie chart showing how much um, it cost to run uh, Transport for London and how much was left um, as profit. Um, it, kind of almost saying that the it making profit is a bad thing. Um, it should all be taken back from it um, and used to fund this fair cut. And I think whilst the fair cut is a good idea, and I think it was a mistake of Boris to increase the cost of the weekly travel card so much right before an election, really bad politics, unusual from someone who's meant to be such an um, astute political performer, um, I do worry that the, the quality um, is going to suffer. You know, the, the tube is good during the day, but it's pretty terrible at rush hour. Um, it's a horrible, you know, being squeezed into like, like sardines. Um, so, yeah, it, it's eye-catching. It doesn't seem to be affecting his poll rating. Um, I think voters are a little bit sceptical and suspicious of uh, Ken's pledges to sort of do fair cuts, whatever. Um, and they're thinking, well, is this realistic? Is the quality going to get even worse? I'm quite interested, actually, by Livingston's bargaining tactics that seem to be going on quite often. He said he was going to, uh, he, he was going to, if he got elected, he was going to pay his income tax in the correct way. Uh, he's now saying if he gets elected, then he'll resign. If isn't bargaining one of the later stages of the grieving process? <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. Also, in his, he's had a very long political career. And he has promised so many things in the past that he simply hasn't delivered. One such memory I have is when in, I was a student in, in 2000 and I went on the demo, I went on the march, and he gave this big rousing speech about how, how his generation were educated for free and they shouldn't pull up the ladder behind them and he was behind us 100%. And, and um, I saw nothing. Uh, fees are now more expensive, it's top-up fees, it's uh, ridiculously expensive to be educated, to go to university now. And I just think, I don't know, once that's been kind of set in your mind that you don't, that you don't trust a candidate, I don't really think it matters what they say, to be honest. I, I think you're being a little tough on Ken, because <laughs> when, when it comes down to it, the mayor has jurisdiction only really over one thing and one thing only, and that's transport. The mayor doesn't have any control at all over like, national education policy. And in terms of what he did actually deliver... I think Ken delivered a lot more than Boris. I mean, Boris said that he would negotiate a sort of no-strike deal uh, with the unions, but there have been more tube strikes um, in four years of Boris than there were in eight, eight years of Ken. Um, so I, I think in that sense, um, you know, Ken's record, in, in terms of what a mayor can actually do, he did quite a lot with that um, sort of instrument of power. Um, Boris, for me, has got rid of a lot of things. You know, one of his th- first acts was to get rid of drinking on the transport system, and then he got rid of um, Ian Blair. Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure what Boris has actually brought to London, although uh, back on Thursday he did get rid of something uh, vile, which was these uh, sort of uh, anti-gay... Um, adverts that were being put onto mm. the red buses, and I think that was the right move. Yes, tell us about those. That was uh, quite a big story last week. There's been a few bus side arguments, haven't there? There was one to do with the existence of God a couple of years ago, which was quite entertaining with the Advertising Standards Authority having to pronounce on whether or not God exists. Be- <laughs> a beautiful moment. Um, tell us about this other story. Well, a, um, a group called Stonewall took objection to the fact that the church wasn't really embracing gay people, be it uh, you know, gay congregants or gay bishops. So they um, commissioned a series of adverts that would go on the edges of buses um, that 
um, orbited um, or swirled around, I should say, St. Paul's Cathedral, saying some people are gay, get over it. Um, which was a really savvy move, and I don't think it um, offended too many people, apart from perhaps the sort of uh, you know the, the hierarchy of the church. Um, but in response, a, a, a extreme right wing Christian group called uh, Core Issues Trust um, have have rejoined um, by putting out an advert saying things like. Uh, post-gay and proud, which for me seems to be insinuating that being gay is a uh, is a disease that can be cured through prayer. Um, which does, is, does it actually imply that post-gay just seems to suggest that somebody has moved through a gay phase, doesn't it? Well, it implies that it's something you can be talked out of through therapy, whereas I, I, I think scientific evidence shows that that's not the case. I mean, you get pigs that are gay, you get dogs that are gay. You know, they haven't made this sort of rational choice and gone to therapy. It's a biological thing. It's not really a choice. Um, What's interesting is that a lot of prominent uh, gay people in public life, like the sort of uh, the former vicar and Labour politician Chris Bryant, has said, no, let them them spout their nonsense in in the interest of freedom of speech. Whereas Boris, possibly with one eye on the election coming up, wanting to portray himself as a sort of uh, a a cheerleader and guardian for diversity, Mm -hmm. um, back on Thursday night, intervened and slapped it down. And he got a lot of praise, even on the comment section of the Guardian website. He was getting praise. Yeah, yeah. So so he's making progress. Well, and and quite rightly so. I mean, this is a fairly disgusting campaign, isn't it? It's definitely an intolerant one. Um, again, just leading leading on from what you were saying earlier. I, again, I'm I'm in agreement. It, gay people now can adopt children, which, which which is great. I mean, some people do go through phases. Some people do go through phases, and then they go, oh, you know. I mean, I know people who've been through phases, and they said, oh, you know, I've I, you know, I did I did date the same the same sex, and I did it for a few years, but now I'm dating dating the opposite sex. And it's just it's all it's all very subjective. Everybody is different. And you have to be tolerant of, of other people's viewpoints. And I think when it comes to, to, to uh, as you said, uh, their campaign is kind of insinuating that, it, that homosexuality is not natural and that you can be talked, uh, talked over it or through it or get therapy for it. But some people do see it, I think some people do see it as a phase and not in a derogatory way. And, some, and for some people, you know, it is, it is genetic and you are gay. And I think what comes out of this whole story is that you have to be really tolerant of other people's viewpoints but ch- try and get your point across concisely and, 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 and properly What do you feel more broadly about the idea of carrying these arguments through on the side of buses? Uh, I, I, I'm in favour of taking debates out uh, onto the streets of London and, and getting people to engage in, uh, with the issues of the day. Again, that's exactly the kind of thing that used to happen in coffee houses. But I mean... Well, no, the, the key difference that I see here is on the side of the bus, you've only got so much space, uh, big letters, it's essentially you're parading something the length of a tweet around town. That, that's not really conducive to a, an in-depth discussion of an issue, is it? Well, it, it might trigger an in-depth discussion. Um, it's going to catch your eye, and uh, I, I think that's just the kind of thing that might be a sort of catalyst for further debate. I mean, you, you can't have a whole treatise on the edge of the bus sort of going around like, laying out the arguments sort of for and against. Which is quite a shame because sometimes when you, you've got nothing to read on the bus or you, you've run out of uh, battery for your MP3 player, maybe that's exactly what you'd like to tuck into. That would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah, bring it on. Maybe if Paddock wins, that should be his first act, a treatise on the edge of the bus. Well, I mean, in fact, buses are in the news for other reasons because Boris, one of the, his first jobs as mayor was to do away with the loathed bendy bus the rather fl- flammable bendy bus um, he got rid of those at some expense and he's brought in his own 
bus. Uh, he has, uh, one of which goes right past uh, my house in Hackney. And uh, w- when I saw it, I was actually quite impressed because it does look like this sort of, it's, quite, it's a gleaming futuristic spaceship of a thing. It looks like it's fit for the 21st century. But that's not the full story. It's, it's actually a fusion of sort of present and part of future and past because he's, of course, harking back to the, uh, the halcyon days of the Rootmaster. And what I'm interested to see is whether they can possibly sustain financially this idea of having a driver and a bus conductor at the back because it seems to me that's doubling up the costs and you're going to have to pass some of those costs onto the onto the commuters and the passengers and that's going to be wildly unpopular and it's derided by ken of course as just being a big vanity project it's probably no coincidence that they've coming in you know just literally like a few weeks before the election but although i've seen them i haven't been on it yet so i'm going to reserve judgment until i've actually been on it a uh, route master uh, of course is one of those buses that you can hop on and hop off at the at the back of the bus uh, you, you jump on and if you don't time it quite fast enough then you find you're still on the street and just chasing a bus we had the bendy buses where you could get on at two different doors and avoid paying ticket apparently this new bus you've got three entrances two staircases up to the upper deck so this is like the air bus of the streets isn't it <laughs> <laughs> pretty much <laughs> We've got, of course, the mayoral election almost with us. Uh, how do you feel about... Is this suitably vague as a question, not how do you vote or how do you intend to vote? But what, what's your feelings about the candidates on offer? I think Boris lost a lot of votes uh, last summer. Yes. If the capital that you're the, the figurehead of is essentially burning to the ground and you say, no, I shall my kale holiday, I'm not going to come back. No, it's fine, I have, I have complete faith in the police system, I'm not going to come back. And if the Mayor of London and actually the Prime Minister both do not come back when everything is essentially crumbling apart, then I, I really, I, I will be actually be quite surprised if, if he's re-elected, to be completely honest with because you. Because those, those pictures travelled worldwide, didn't they? But a lot of people didn't want to come to the UK because they'd seen Croydon on fire and people jumping out of burning buildings. Yeah, yeah. I had. I mean, the Russian government took the unprecedented step of advising its citizens not to travel to the suburbs of London, which uh, I think that must have been a first in the, in the history of the country. But I, I think Boris, he's, he's a mayor for the good times. You know, when the sun's shining, things going well, he's incredibly articulate, um, he's got this bumbling persona that people seem to like. But when that all kicked off, it was an incredibly grave moment and it just seemed like he wasn't really taking it seriously. However, it was a while back and he's still ahead in the polls, so who knows. What about the candidates ranged against him? Because, of course, he could be strong as or as weak as you please, but if there's no competition, then he's going to get back in, isn't he? Well, again, it depends on, on how strongly people feel about the way that he's, uh, that he's conducted himself politically over the past year. Uh, we've already discussed that he's a proponent of vanity projects and he wasn't uh, a figure of support last summer. And it, I think a lot of people's um, faith in the Liberal Democrats has also been compromised. But then you have Labour who didn't get in last year, obviously. So who do you, who do you vote for? I think, uh, to be honest, personally, I think it's pretty unpredictable. But... That's just me. <laughs> so Paddock, Brian Paddock could, of course, be suffering from uh, anti-Nick Clegg sentiment. I think they're all suffering from their association 
with the parties. I think uh, Ken Livingston would do much better if Ed Miliband stopped hovering behind him like a ghoul in all the promotional <laughs> literature. Get rid of him. Paddock, yeah, of course. I mean, how many sort of like Paddock flyers have got Clegg's face on? Like, none of them. Um, Boris Cameron, uh, debatable, that's a, that's a bit trickier. I, I think it's a shame that the three main candidates are exactly the same as the ones four years ago. I mean, it would have been nice to have had someone like Diane Abbott throwing her uh, hat into the ring. It seems like there is a lack of choice. People are suspicious of Ken because of his cronyism. Yeah, it's a shame we don't have other types of candidates, female candidates, perhaps. Ken's media appearances have struck me as he, he looks weak. There's something, something not right about that. I wonder if, having been out of politics, he's been much more heavily involved with radio presenting, amongst other things. I, I wonder if he's just lost his bite, politically speaking. Yeah, he, I saw him on the tube um, going up through Finsbury Park and he, he's, he's sort of sitting there on his own looking incredibly smug and just wanted to be seen as though this was a big statement, like, look at me, I, I, get, the, I get the tube. But yeah, he has seemed much more rattled and uh, less confident, less fluent in debates. Um, I, I think that's true. He's, he's possibly taken his eye off the ball. I think he's been very shaken by this attacks row. A little bit, in my opinion, unfairly, because he hasn't actually done anything remotely illegal. He's just used money he's earned to pay his staff, um, which in itself is, is not a crime. And arguably, it's actually quite a sort of rational thing to do. Um, but now it's got the whiff of corruption, and it's very hard to get rid of that, especially when you've got you know, papers like the Evening Standard just you know, machine-gunning out uh, anti-Ken vitriol on a daily basis. I, I guess he's just got a bit depressed about it all, and maybe that comes through on television. There's also the, the sniping between him and, and Boris as well. Again, I think regardless of how the, the coalition government has kind of tainted the Liberal Democrat side of things, I, I do think that might also give Paddock the edge. I mean, they're, they're kind of sniping at each other. And I, um, forgive me, I can't remember the ins and outs of it, but has, hasn't one of them refused to accept the other one's apology? Or There's a row on the left. Yeah. They, they, they were screaming at each other in the left. Um, apparently it happens quite... Frequently when Ken and Boris are in confined spaces, uh, it ends in a massive uh, screaming row. Mm. Uh, and there were other people in the lift as well witnessing all this. Uh, so uh, there's a bit of drama. You know, it, it gets people interested in the mayoral election, uh, which, which is good. Mm. It does, but do people really want to see kind of sniping and kind of bickering and refusing each other's apologies? Is that what people really... Because it, it kind of ties in with the whole kind of reality TV X Factor come dine with me yeah, kind of but they're all edge popular. they're all popular aren't they yeah i mean negative campaigning <laughs> like, you know sort of morally it's you know it's, it's not wrong but it's it's not the most constructive way of proceeding because you don't say what you're for i mean you need only look at the you know in sniping in the republican party mm. in america it's millions of pounds just to demolish their opponents um but it does provide a good show mm. and I, sometimes i think the negative Narratives are the ones that lodge in people's minds, which is a shame, but a, a sad fact of electioneering. Let's say goodbye to somebody. We would like to say goodbye for 11 and a half years to Gordon Thompson, age 34. He's the fellow who set fire to Reeves Furniture Store in Croydon. Ta-ta. <laughs> well, this is the infamous pin-up boy of the London riots, I think, isn't he? Um, no one will forget the sight of that, that huge furniture store on fire, which had been run by three generations of the same family. Uh, that was one of the more justified sentences. I think some of the sentencing after yeah. that, I mean, people being sent to prison for five years for posting uh, a potentially incendiary comment on Facebook when they were drunk, and they were only, like, 19. That is uh, overkill. Incendiary is quite an interesting word in yes. the circumstances. <laughs>
Yes, yeah, so you got the impression there was a bit of a, a justice conveyor belt going on there, wasn't there, with a, a judge at the end of it going, three years, five years, two years, off you go. Maybe that's what we needed for the time, though. Going back to the original point, what would have been better if, if at the time um, our, our representatives had actually come back and sorted the whole sorry mess out a bit sooner? And, uh, I mean, I think we all knew, even before the cases started going to court, I think we all knew that this was going to be kind of epically almost impossible to pull off in a way that was like fair and standardized and kind of in a way that makes any sense when we live in when we live in a culture where uh, kind of tweeting you know tweeting or facebook posting can get you uh, even more time in prison than 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 raping or or Mm. injuring somebody i think you're already on the cusp of of a system that needs reform Mm. and i think we all knew that subconsciously and I think prison isn't the answer. Sending these people who may or may not have uh, incited uh, rioting to prison. I mean, I think 75% of the rioters were former offenders themselves. So it's obviously not the solution. I don't know what is the solution. But I think just sort of like banging people up. Um, well, I, I think I want to press you, though, because you've, okay. you've suggested that perhaps policing isn't really the, the key determining factor in, in sorting out crime. Maybe not imprisonment either. Mm. You must have some notion of what you think might work of course i think sort of opportunities and um you know things like uh introducing more apprenticeships things that the government does sort of purport to be doing and is doing slowly um things like not cutting public uh, local authorities um so vigorously at the moment so that you do have options for people who are living in you know deprived areas where there might not be that much to do um if there is the sense that you could go and do an apprenticeship or you could go and sort of start something up um or even i know you could look into the idea of breaking up the big problem estates i think the fact that you've got a concentration of um troublemakers in in the same place is problematic If, if they were broken up and this has been tried in some other european countries then the rate of crime goes down yeah yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's a nature-nurture argument, isn't it? I mean, somebody can naturally be kind of, you know, a bad egg. They can be in- inherently kind of predisposed to that kind of behaviour. But, again, I agree with you. If you have, like, a going towards the nurture argument, if you do have a huge concentration of people who are in the same boat, who are all kind of d- driven to that side then a lot of people can be kind of rescued and redeemed and it's not a lost cause. I'm, I'm a big proponent of rehabilitation mm-hmm. as opposed to incarceration. Which apparently is one of the areas within the penal system that's been heavily hit by the budgetary cuts, unfortunately. So, right, the, the very bit that needs the most attention is actually being withdrawn yeah. the most readily. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have, we have a culture where um, we treat uh, drug addicts as criminals as opposed to people who are sick mm. everybody has their own opinion and everybody is, is welcome to think what they like but personally I believe that if you do suffer from addiction or anything like that you shouldn't be criminalised you should be helped when um, Amy Winehouse died and Russell Brand put up his very articulate blog post about how we live in a society that criminalises people who, who make mistakes who do wrong and that should, that should not be the case so the fact that rehabilitation is not an area that's being expanded is, is, is very, very disturbing. What election pledge would you most like one of the mayoral candidates 
to make we asked via Facebook in the last week we've had lots of responses as you can imagine thank you to all those who've responded we'll be asking another question at the end of the show the most popular responses were from uh, John Hodson who said not to take the credit for something the previous incumbent set in motion Paul Trainier said to answer a direct question with a direct answer and those two were the mm-hmm. most popular the ones I like though Colin Hode says uh, that the election pledge he'd like the mayoral candidates to make is to automate the tube as a union busting suggestion if ever I heard one Gary Williams very complicated engineering project going on here Gary Williams says sink the road that runs the length of the Victoria embankment north bank of the Thames into a tunnel to allow the pedestrianisation of the north bank to mirror the south bank as a cultural and tourist centre He's thought about that, hasn't he? There's problems, of course, with sewers underneath it, but let's not worry too much about that now. Mike Patterson, Mike Patterson of London Historians, an old friend of the show, um, says no heating in tube carriages whatsoever. I think he's got his angry hat on. Uh, I I actually, um, I can relate to the heating in carriages. I take the Metropolitan Line. Um, Slade over the course of the interview might be able to work out where I live. (laughs) I I take the Metropolitan Line and um, I'm quite sensitive to heat. And uh, the, well, they've brought out the new trains, but the old trains that are still in operation, which I prefer because they've got much more seats, they have these huge heaters under the seats. And it's, it's insane because we're in April now and I know the weather is insane. I know the weather is mad. But what every British person does is take out an extra jumper and umbrella. We, we don't need the heaters on. This is, this is my angry, this is like my angry commuter rant now. And also in the morning, I take two metros. This is absolutely true. And I'm going to admit this on the podcast. I take two metros. I actually sit on one and drape it over the heater so it doesn't burn the back of my legs. And people look at me like I think I'm some but kind of human. Train on fire. Like I'm some kind of human budgery gar or something. I do get quite a few suspect looks. This is what I've been driven to. Wow. Well, the, the, uh, the good news is, I'm, I'm not sure whether to break it to you, but he actually said no eating in tube carriages. But I think there's a whole other tirade that's been brought about through, through that. Uh, so no heating and no eating please in tube carriages just get rid of the seats altogether get, get rid of everything <laughs> yeah we'll just, just stand uh, around like cattle shall yeah, we <laughs> yeah, yeah. another comprehensive suggestion from andy jeffrey designate tourist only carriages on the underground to be used only out of rush hour what? that's in capitals particularly those with large suitcases and a must is to remove rucksacks from backs when aboard an underground station name pronunciation announcer is optional. And that's pronounced pronunciation. Olga Sidoric says ban chewing gum. Offenders will have their chewing gum confiscated with tongs and then thrown at them. Stocks will be brought back for this purpose. Somebody's upset, Olga. <laughs> Lots of things on the, on the tube rile people. I, w- I was going through yeah. Baker Street the other day and it said, uh, here we are at Baker Street, a light for Madame Two Swords. And the man next to me went, how dare you? It's Tuso, it's not Two Sword. <laughs> and he ranted all the way to um, Edgeware Road. I have to agree with, with the chewing gum. Um, that's the bane of my existence. Again, as, a, as, a night, as, a, as an unwilling nine to five wage slave um, at the moment, uh, I've been subject to having kind of sitting in chewing gum and who puts chewing gum on seats? I, I'm, I'm being absolutely serious. Who puts chewing gum on seats? I think we can rule Olga out. Yeah, oh, no. <laughs> Olga, Olga and me. <laughs> Go have a coffee with Olga. No, because uh, you have to fold it. You get home, you have to fold it with skate. You've got to put it in the freezer and then you've got to chisel it off. And it's. Have you uh, thought I about agree. cycling to work? No, because I'll die. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> uh, you, you've given me a, a bit of a down note to move into the uh, cultural events for the week ahead. Uh, there's no easy segue, so I'll just get on with it. 
The English National Opera go on tour from Tuesday to the Hampstead Theatre in North London. Their production is Wolfgang Riem's starkly expressionistic sonic psychogram, Jacob Lenz. Could be Jacob Lenz, we're not sure. The work charts the mental disintegration of the real-life Sturm und Drang poet of the same name. This is the first-ever English translation of Jacob or Jacob Lenz, Riem's most widely performed opera. It's being put on to celebrate Riem's 60th birthday. Tickets cost £45. Visit www.eno.org to find out more. Advance warning of something coming up in a couple of months. His Holiness the Dalai Lama will speak at the Royal Albert Hall this summer in an event sure to sell out fast. The venerated Buddhist will examine the relationship between heart and mind. The talk takes place on the 19th of June at 2pm and is hosted by the Tibet House Trust and the Tibetan community in Britain. The main man will be followed by a performance of Tibetan songs and dances. Get tickets at theroyalalberthall.com. Prices range from £10 to £100. Now, writer Edna Walsh is reunited with actor Cillian Murphy in a new production opening this week at the National Theatre. Following the success of Disco Pigs, the pair are back with a one-man show called Mr. Man. Fierce evangelist Thomas McGill has God on his shoulder, but strong ideas about the rest of the village's morality. The powerful play opens on the Littleton stage at the National Theatre from Wednesday the 18th of April. Tickets cost between £12 and £40. Visit the National Theatre's website to find out more. The London Film Museum is opening a brand new exhibition space from Saturday the 21st of April in the original Flower Cellars in the heart of Covent Garden. The first exhibition will be Magnum on Set, a series of photographs from the golden age of cinema. Look out for pictures of Charlie Chaplin, Orson Welles, Marilyn Monroe and Eve Arnold, to name but a few. As well as the photos, there'll be the cameras used by the photographers and original artefacts from the films themselves. Entrance costs £8.50 with concessions for students, seniors and teenagers. Visit the London Film Museum's website. And finally, this week's music pick is La Linea, the London Latin Music Festival, which runs from Monday the 16th of April until Friday the 27th, taking place at venues across London, including the Barbican, Coco, Rich Mix and more, are a winning combination of Latin solo stars, bands, choirs and DJs, bringing a fantastic 21st century presentation of all that is best and current in contemporary Latin music. Visit www.comono, that's C-O-M-O, no.co.uk for all the details you'll need about this festival. And don't forget you can find out more about all of the events just listed and many more, plus all the stories we've been discussing today at Londonist.com. Matt Green and Janan Yenjevsky, what did you like the look of there? Well, it was an amazing cluster of... Uh cultural event. I quite want to go to all of them. The Film Museum sounded interesting, the new film space, that's probably the one I would head to. The London Latin Music Festival, because it's going to be at loads of amazing venues. I have a soft spot for uh, Rich Mix and Barbican. They're just incredible, so I'd probably pop along to that. Very few people have a soft spot for Barbican. I absolutely love the Barbican, it's wonderful. I know that Brutalist architecture is a bit is a major point of contention for a lot of people, but uh, for me I find it bizarrely Romantic in a very idiosyncratic kind of way. The, the reeds and the water and all, all the flower boxes that are teeming outside uh, the apartments. It's, it's gorgeous. Mm. If you go on a sunny day, walk around, get a drink, sit outside, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Do you know why it's called Barbican? 
do go on. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Roman uh, term for fortress, because um, it was embedded into the old Roman walls, and that's where they had the fortress to fight off the mm. Celtic invaders. They used to pour boiling oil on their heads at the spot where the Brutalist Towers now stand. Are you telling me Celtic invaders got down this far? They did, yeah. Yeah, frequently. Well, I didn't know that. Neither did I. Um, we've got one more uh, story that we can finish off today's show with, and it may come as a surprise to know that IKEA is expanding in, in ways that we couldn't possibly imagine. Yeah, this is the story that I read today, that they um, are going to build some community housing uh, in in London. It's a South London or South East London. I have to, I have to let, look that up. Um, but, yeah, in in Scandinavia, it's, it's quite common for... Um, companies to kind of put put back into the community and and build uh, places where people can live I mean obviously they will be making money off of it and they will they'll own the land and everything so it's not completely altruistic but it's um, mainly from what I can gather uh, to bring affordable housing uh, to families of course they're making their own market as well aren't they by then people once they've made the houses people will want to fill the houses with furniture and where better to get that furniture from then I care, <laughs> but it's it's been kind of long established that they have a have a, a passion for for design and kind of solving kind of social problems through architecture. So it doesn't it's 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 a it's a good idea. And 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 why not if you can do it? If if both parties are winning, if, if families are going to be better off, and if the company are going to make more money and be better off, then 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 why not? We shouldn't always see big corporations as as evil faceless conglomerates if if everybody's winning then i'm i think it's a brilliant idea Mm, quite so when i saw the headline of the story i imagined that what we were talking about was like a bourneville type uh, (laughs) arrangement with the the factory in the middle and the 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 isolated town there but in fact it's a lot more uh useful to the community at large by the sounds of it yeah it sounds fantastic good You agree with me, you agree with me, hooray! I knew I'd get there at the end. Stop stealing my lines, man. (laughs) Now, we've got the the quiz, uh, which people who don't pay attention don't expect. Um, I'm I'm just looking at the look of shock across the uh, faces of my guests, so we'll see how we get on with that in a moment. First of all, though, how would you like a free audio book? As I'm sure you're aware, to make sure you're never without entertainment, we've teamed up with audible.co.uk to offer you a free digital audio book from their extensive catalogue. You can choose any title from their online library of over 60,000 digital audiobooks with a special 30-day free trial of the Audible service. You can listen to your audiobook on all iPods, iPhones, iPads, and on compatible phones and MP3 players, and you can even burn it to a CD and listen in the car. And your free audiobook is yours to keep whether you decide to cancel in your trial period or not. All you need to do to get that free audiobook is to go to www www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist and click through. I know a lot of you are already doing that. This week in London's history. So we've got five questions here. <laughs> Let's see. I thought you were going to quiz us on the audiobook. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How to sign up. We start with Monday the 2nd of April 1962. The first, what, is opened on York Road opposite Waterloo Station. And while 
Oh, my guests are thinking about that, by the way. Do have a look on Londonist.com. There's some pictures of the area outside Waterloo Station, plans of what they're going to do with it. A new plaza, basically. Looks rather good. Have a look there. Back to York Road, opposite Waterloo Station. The first what was opened in 2nd of April, 1962. I feel stupid for turning my iPhone off now because I could have Googled that in the time that you were saying that. <laughs> Is it a laundrette? It's not a laundrette. It's, it's outside. It's opened in the sense of it's first used. And the road, the, the fact that there's a road involved is key. Wow. Some of those plans that they're demonstrating are all about getting from one side of the road to the other. Oh, is it a uh, pedestrian crossing? Yes, it is. It's a, it's a panda crossing. I'm going to give you that one, Matt. Tuesday, the 3rd of April, 1954. Something happened on the Thames for the 100th time. What was it? Somebody dive in. No. <laughs> a bridge fell down? No, that would have been interesting. No. <laughs> oh, it froze over? No. Not in April. No, Not in April. Think about what's been going on on the river in the last week or so. Oh, the Queen sailed down it? You're getting much closer now, but still not right. Silence from Janan. I know, it's quite unusual, that, isn't it? <laughs> so it's, it's an important dignitary Some did something to do no, with... To do with, to do with uh, moving on craft down the river. Listeners at this moment are going, think universities, think universities. Jeremy Paxman was on. <laughs> Jeremy Paxman, floating edition of He's Night. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to put you out of your misery. It was the 100th boat race oh. between Oxford and Cambridge. Oxford yeah. won. The f- disrupt it? Uh, no, uh, not that it says here, no. I think that's only happened once before. One, one disruption, which is when they, uh, they both sank, I think. That is quite a disruption. Yes. <laughs> it's the, the, the first Oxford and Cambridge submarine race. The 4th of April, 1896. Something arrived in Trafalgar Square. It's still there now. I'll give you a clue. It's an institution. Which one? National Portrait Gallery is there. Isn't Spot on one all. Yay. Good Yay, going. I'll say that a bit louder, actually. I'll say that quite quietly. <laughs> 5th of April. 1821, the newly rebuilt St Paul's Church in Shadwell is consecrated. Many London churches, as we know, have strong connections with particular professions, so you'll get the actors' church mm-hmm. and the uh, what have you. Uh, members of which profession were particularly welcome at this one in Shadwell? Was it uh, shipbuilders? You are definitely on the right track. Ship captain? You are spot on. Yes, it was sea captains. So the best you can do is a draw now, Janan. Uh, six. <laughs> that, was ra- that was a rather dignified. What was that? What was that sound? That was that. Sixth <laughs> of April, fifteen eighty. Something happened in London, causing the only recorded London fatalities to be attributed to such an occurrence. What was it? Did the gallows collapse, crushing the spectators who are watching a public execution? That's an answer, isn't it? It's not right, but what an answer. (laughs) No, it's a natural phenomenon. Oh, Oh, earthquake. An earthquake. It was uh, later estimated to be at Richter magnitude between 5.3 and 5.9. That makes Matt Green our winner by three points to one this week. Do you want to crack again? (laughs) 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 Yeah. We have to uh, tie off, unfortunately. We're up against the clock. What I want to hear, though, is about what you guys have got uh, coming up in the near future. Matt, I know there's a book underway, for example. Yeah, well, um, we're leading uh, immersive historical tours um, through Unreal City Audio, which is uh, unrealcityaudio.com. Um, and you snake through the city, meeting, uh, well, immersing yourself in the sight, sound, song, stories of the past. And uh, that's all coming up. And there's a book that's going to tie in with that 
called The Lost World of the London Coffee House, um, which is uh, to do with how, how different it was to go and drink coffee um, in the 17th and 18th century, which is all about meeting strangers and talking about politics and philosophy like, late into the night. Whereas if you tried to do that today, uh, people would look at you like you were a freak and probably ask you to get away from their table. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> Happens to me often. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, it wasn't like going into Starbucks. It was a voyage of discovery and it inspired some of the best ideas that would transform the city and uh, that's what the tours are about um, and we run them every fortnight um, so please come along give us that website again um, www.onrealcityaudio.com well enunciated Jeanette hi um, yeah uh, I'm right writer flundist and I'm just going to be doing kind of more articles basically got a few more coming out um one hopefully about uh, karaoke as you mentioned at the beginning of the program yes what's that all about um uh i love karaoke <laughs> and there's lots of different styles there's booth style and there's kind of um which is the, the typically the japanese style and there's kind of the open style where you're in a room full of people that you don't know so i've got those are i've got some articles coming out i only use my first name on the site because my my last name has got 12 letters and looks like someone's spazzed out at scrabble so uh so that's how you find me just type in and I'm there doing lots of spoken word stuff I did it for the first time at Rich Mix the other night and it was phenomenal so I'm going to be kind of haunting the, uh, the the poetry the spoken word scene over the next few months and I'm also in the studio recording some music with my friend for fun I don't know if that's going to get released or not but I've got lots of arty stuff going on so um you'll see me around fantastic so yes do look up uh, Janan's articles and uh, like we said at the beginning you do food and culture and all sorts of stuff as well yeah I do um, I do 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 features um, I do uh, food do restaurant reviews I'm actually going to pop up to each street just right after this popping up to each street and um, interview some vendors if you fancy got, uh, trying yeah. <laughs> uh, drinking some coffee made in the 17th century manner which was a uh, gritty and viscous and tangy and spicy then we serve up uh, free shots of 18th century coffee on our tours and sometimes oh. chocolate too and made the Aztec way without any milk just really bitter actually bitterer than coffee I might, might have to go on one of those actually yeah. <laughs> there we go a match made in heaven by the sounds of it um, and that's uh, that is all for this week except our question of the week if you fancy responding to it uh, do get on to Facebook either Londonist uh, Facebook or our Londonist Out Loud Facebook page the question is if you were speaking to a newcomer to the city what would you want them to know about London we'll be discussing the best answers the favourite answers in next week's show for this week, though, Matt Green and Janan Yenjevsky. Thanks very much. <laughs> And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guests, Matt Green and Janan Yenjevsky. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley, Zoe Craig, Matt Brown, and Dave Haste. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. And I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. Wait. Straining